I sure wish they would make some more superhero movies is something that no one is saying these days, right? I mean, there's no, we are living in the age of superhero movies. It seems like one is coming out every other week, and there's a lot to critique about the genre, but there are some good things about those movies too. For instance, they do a good job at showing the, the battle between good and evil. And even more recently, they've gotten even better at showing the various responses to the hero's actions. So for instance, in a recent Superman movie, there was an alien who was coming to Earth. He had a world-ending machine. Everybody's going to die. But what happens? Superman steps in, saves the entire planet, and everything ends great. People are grateful for what he did. They even border on worshiping him. They are clinging to him as a savior figure. But it's interesting, in the sequel, there's a sizable faction who are upset with Superman. They're not pleased with him. In fact, they resent him because even though he saved everybody on the entire planet, there was damage that was done. Cars were crushed, buildings were leveled, and there was massive economic loss because of his actions. And so people labeled Superman a liability, and they beg him to leave their planet. They believe that his power and his presence disrupts their lives too much, and so they want nothing to do with him. And here's what's interesting. That division between those reactions to what he did actually mirrors our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 8. See, the people here, they're confronted with Jesus' identity and his power and his mission, and the people have divided reactions to what Jesus does here. After witnessing Jesus' power over demonic forces, everyone is forced to make a choice. They can either embrace Jesus for who he is, or they can reject Jesus and have nothing to do with him. And it's the same choice that each and every person is still faced with today. When you're confronted with the reality of the gospel, there is no way to avoid responding to Jesus. You'll either see Jesus for who he is, and you're going to respond with repentance and faith and submission and love, or you're going to see exactly who Jesus is and what he demands from you, and you're going to respond with hatred and rejection. But there is no getting around the fact that you must respond. And that's the whole point of this story. There are no fence sitters in the kingdom of God. You can't be halfway in and halfway out. Indifference is not an option. That's what this passage is teaching us. When you encounter Jesus, you'll either cleave or beg him to leave. And those are the only two options. When you encounter Jesus and he comes into your life, you will either cleave or beg him to leave. And if that's true, church, and those are really the only two options, then what we need to be asking ourselves this morning is, well, what factors contribute to how we respond? Because you know there are going to be a lot of factors, right? There's a lot of influence in our lives, things that are helping us make our decisions. And so what factors actually do contribute to how we respond to Jesus? And the first thing that I want us to understand this morning is that there actually are legitimate forces out there that are working against us at all times. I mean, notice how this passage begins in verse 28. It says, And when Jesus came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. 
You see, this passage, it actually teaches us a lot about the characteristics of demon possession and demonic influence. And I want us to know these characteristics. I want us to, to recognize them because it's important for our own lives. Notice one of the first characteristics is isolation. These men were living in total isolation. The Bible says they were in the tombs and in the, in the caves. It was the living among the dead. And another interesting characteristic here is notice this. It's easy to miss, but the influence of the demonic seems to control an entire region or population. Did you notice that there? Because notice what it says. It says that the men here were so fierce that no one could pass their way. In other words, their presence controlled an entire region in such a way that literally everybody else had to alter their lives to accommodate these two men. Furthermore, in Mark's account of this story, we read that these men had supernatural strength. They could not be bound by any chains. No one could subdue them. Also, the influence of the demonic led them to be extremely depressed and inflict self-harm. We read in Mark's account in Mark 5, 5, Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he, Mark only focuses on one of the men, but there were two, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now, it's, it's interesting. These men are so depressed because of this demonic possession that they are experiencing and the demonic influence in their lives. They are so depressed that night and day they are always crying out and literally cutting themselves with stones in these tombs. And then not only that, finally, we realize that these men are not in their right mind while they're possessed by these demons. We know that because in Mark's account, we read that once Jesus does cast out the demons, the men return to their right minds. And, and so these are the main characteristics of demon possession and demonic influence. And what I want you to understand is that demon possession and demonic influence still happen today. It happens all the time. And, and people wonder, well, pastor, why don't we see it then? If it's true that demon possession still happens and demonic influence is still real, well, then why don't we see it? And the thing is, we do. We just don't attribute what we see to the demonic. It's because our culture has trained us to be materialistic as they are. Our culture tells us to focus on things that we can see and touch and hear and feel. But I want you to understand, as Doug read earlier, there is a war going on at all times. We are not in a peacetime, church. This is wartime, and we are always in the midst of a spiritual war that is going on. And there are influences that are seeking to lead you astray. There are influences that are seeking to teach you things about God that are not true and lead you into the kingdom of darkness rather than into the kingdom of God. This is still going on today. I mean, think about some of the characteristics we read here. People living in isolation. People having a disproportionate control over a population, a control that literally causes other people to have to adjust their entire lives to accommodate this group of people. Severe depression, self-harm, not acting in one's right mind. Does this not sound exactly like what we see in our world today? Of course it does. It's because this, you look at our world today, you see these characteristics, you see this is exactly what you get when sinful man falls under the influence of demonic powers. I mean, just think about a couple of examples from our world. Is a doctor acting in his right mind when he rips unborn children limb from limb in the womb 
and demonstrates a total disregard for life, is that acting in his right mind? No, absolutely not. I mean, God loves life. Satan loves death. The doctor knows exactly what he's doing. He has the medical degree to prove it. He knows scientifically that the child in the womb is a full human. It is a human. It will always be a human. He knows exactly what he's doing with biologically, scientifically, intellectually. He knows exactly what he's doing. The problem is he just doesn't care. It's a total disregard for life, and you only get that kind of a disregard for, for life when you fall under the power of demonic influence. He's not acting in his right mind. Let me ask you another question. Are people acting in their right minds when they mutilate their bodies with the removal of their sex organs trying to become something they're not? No, absolutely not. God doesn't make mistakes. Do we believe that, church? God did not make someone one gender or one sex, and actually, in reality, they were supposed to be something else. God does not make mistakes. In the beginning, he made man and woman in his image, and it was good. In fact, it was really good. He doesn't make mistakes. And so when a person thinks that God has made a mistake and they want to change who they are and who God created them to be by inflicting self-harm upon themselves and mutilating their bodies, they are acting under the influence of demonic powers. They're not acting in their right mind. What about the fact that our world has become increasingly isolated? What about the staggering increase in depression and mental illness and suicide rates? What about the increased interest in Satanism? What about the amount of satanic songs that are coming out today? What about the increased interest in occult activities and the use of Ouija boards and things like that? Are all these things not the work of demonic influence in our world? As one pastor said, murder, destruction, hatred, sexual folly, gender bending, insanity, all of these things are demonic graffiti on that which displays the image of God in creation. You see, Satan and his demons are still very active in our world today, which is why the Bible says in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So, so you might not realize it, church, but there is a war going on at all times. There are legitimate spiritual forces out there that want to derail God's plan and lead God's people astray. And our only hope when we are in the midst of this war is not in the strength of our faith. You know that, right? It is not the strength of your faith. It is not how powerful you are. It is not how intelligent you are. Your only hope in the midst of this war is in the one who is sovereign over all powers it be. Jesus has the power and the authority to end the schemes of the demonic in our world. That's why the Bible says in 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now that's good news, is it not? Here's better news, all right? Not only did he come to destroy the works of the devil, this isn't just something he did back in his own day when he was in public ministry. The good news is he still does this today. He is still ending the schemes of the devil and demonic forces today. So yes, Satan and his demons may be very active in our world, but here's the good news, church. So is Jesus. And Jesus is more powerful than Satan could ever be. 
Jesus always triumphs over evil. Jesus will have the victory. And so as his people, we can rejoice in that. But let me just encourage you as your pastor, we have to learn to recognize these characteristics because if we don't learn to recognize them and resist them, we're going to be led astray by them, are we not? So we have to pay attention to what the word says here. We have to learn to recognize these characteristics of demonic influence so that we aren't led astray by their power. And I want you to notice how Jesus interacts with the demons here. Look at verses 29 to 32. The Bible says, And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a, a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went to the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Now, here's what's interesting. We've been in Matthew chapter 8 now for, I think, four weeks. And Jesus's identity has become more and more clear throughout the passage. I mean, uh, throughout the chapter. Remember that there was a, a scholarly Jewish scribe, and he called Jesus what? Teacher, what the outsiders call him. And then there was a a leper and a Gentile centurion, and what do they call Jesus? Lord. Okay, that's better than teacher. But here you have demons, and what do they call Jesus? Son of God. They are not confused about who Jesus is. We may be confused in our world today. Our world may be very confused about who Jesus actually is because he isn't just some good moral teacher. He wasn't just a Jewish rabbi. No, these demons are not confused at all. They know exactly who Jesus is, and so they call him Son of God. I mean, not only that, they know exactly what Jesus is capable of. They know what his plan is because did you notice they said, have you come to torment us before our time? That they know there is coming a day when Jesus is going to destroy Satan's kingdom and all who were part of his kingdom. They know this. And so notice this. What do they do? They begged him. Now, here's what I want you to do. I don't know if you write in your Bible. You probably should. That word beg there, circle it, underline it, put a star by it, square it off, do what you have to do. That word begged is the key word of our passage. It is incredibly significant. The demons begged Jesus to delay their punishment just a little bit longer. Don't, don't, don't just put us to an end now. Delay it a little bit. Send us into these pigs. And so Jesus obliges. And there are a lot of demons here. Okay, here's what's interesting. Uh, in Mark's account, Jesus says, what is your name? And they respond, you all know this, legion, for we are many. In fact, we learn from Mark's account also that there were about 2,000 pigs there. And all these demons are going to go and possess all these pigs. So think about this. Legion, probably about 2,000 demons. Let's say that they divided up evenly. It means that each man here had about 1,000 demons possessing him at one time. I mean, what a miserable existence. We, we read about demon possession in the Bible, but 1,000 demons possessing a person at one time. It's no wonder that they are depressed. It's no wonder that they are hurting themselves and crying out night and day. It is a terrible existence. And I want you to notice this. We want to focus on their deliverance real quick. Notice that Jesus cast the demons out of these men and at once, immediately, they are free. 
They're no longer slaves. They're no longer out of their right mind. They're no longer depressed. They're no longer harming themselves. They're no longer dwelling in tombs. There's no more isolation. When Jesus came into their lives, everything changed in an instant. And these men were never the same. In fact, we read in Mark's account, Mark 5, 18 through 20, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man, remember Mark focuses on one, but there were two, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him. Notice that word again, bling, 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 all right? It's in Mark's account, but flip over there, circle it, square it off, underline it, do what you have to do. The man begged him that he might be with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. So notice that again, that key word, the demons begged Jesus, delay our punishment just a little bit longer. But the men who had experienced deliverance begged Jesus, let us stay with you. Let us go wherever you're going. Jesus before, remember, he had turned away some disciples because they weren't all in. And these men say, we are all in. We are begging you, just let us go where you're going. But Jesus doesn't let them. And that's strange, is it not? But see, Jesus knew that these men, their ministry was in their own town. Jesus knew that there was work to be done there and that these men were the perfect men to go and bring about that change right there where they were at by going and telling others about what Jesus had done for them. And notice what a change it was. Immediately they began to go out into all the village and into the Decapolis and they proclaimed to everyone, listen to what Jesus has done. We were possessed by all these demons. Our lives were miserable, but we met the Son of God. He came into our lives, and now everything has changed. And the Bible says the people marveled at what they had heard. Their lives were immediately transformed. And this is what happens when Jesus comes into our lives, isn't it? When Jesus comes into our lives, we're never the same. We go from being one thing to something entirely different. We are brand new people. Because of Jesus. I mean, I think about the great change that took place in my favorite pastor of all time, John Newton. I mean, we talked about him last week, but John Newton, he was a slave trader and a blasphemer who wanted nothing to do with Jesus at all. But as soon as Jesus came into John Newton's life, he was immediately changed and began living a transformed life. He was totally transformed by the power of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God and the love of God. He literally went from being a slave trader to being the man who helped William Wilberforce end the slave trade in the British Empire once and for all. Now, how amazing is that? God takes a notorious slave trader and by the grace and power of God working in his life through salvation, uses the former slave trader to end slave trading in the British Empire. I mean, what a testament. He went from a blasphemer to a beloved pastor and hymn writer. And when he was writing about the great change that took place in his life, this is what Newton wrote. And I think everybody here, if you're a Christian, you can relate to this. He said, I'm not the man I ought to be, and I'm not the man I want to be, and I'm not even the man I hope to be, but by the grace of God, I'm not the man I used to be. I mean, any Christian in here, do you want to second that? 
I'm not the person I want to be, not the person I ought to be, not the person I hope to be. But by the grace of God, here's what you can say about me. I'm not the man I used to be. It's because Jesus had come into his life. Here's what I want you to understand, folks. Liberation results in transformation. That's what happens when Jesus comes into your life and he delivers you from sin and the bondage of sin that is a part of your life. Liberation results in transformation. You see, the gospel is personal, folks. Here's what I want you to understand. When we read the Bible, we aren't just reading about some historical events that have absolutely no bearing on your life at all. That's not what we're doing. When we read the Bible, we're reading the historical events of what Jesus did for you. It's personal. He did it for you. He didn't just come to do it and be a part of history for no other reason. He did what he did for his people. You see, before Jesus came into our lives, we were a lot like these demon-possessed men, weren't we? We were under the power and influence of Satan. We were in bondage to sin. We weren't in our right minds. We were given to disorder and confusion and chaos. We were weighed down by the heavy chains of sin. We were opposed to God and his ways. But when Jesus comes into our lives and we encounter his mercy and his grace, everything changes, doesn't it? We witness and experience his love for us. We realize that his death leads to life for us. It's a life of freedom. It's an abundant life that he wants for us. And when that realization dawns on us, the only right response to Jesus in that moment is to bow down before him, to repent of your sins, trust in him, and praise him for who he is and what he has done for you. That's the only right response. Jesus comes into our lives and he liberates us from our sins. He breaks the chains of sins. He sets us free and we are totally transformed. The Bible says this about you if you're a Christian, that Jesus makes us entirely new creations. The old has gone and behold, the new has come. Anybody else in here this morning thankful for that, that you aren't the person you used to be before Jesus? That man is gone. He is dead. Praise be to God. The new has come. Our liberation results in transformation. And listen to me. If that's you this morning, if you are a Christian, then like these two men here, you must go and tell others about what Jesus has done for you. You must go and proclaim to others the mercy and grace of God in your life and how Jesus has liberated you from your sins. Because how could you keep that to yourself? You see, here's what I know, and you know this too. We always share the news that matters most to us, don't we? I mean, look at social media. This is a great example of that. You get on social media, people only share the news that matters most to them. People get on there, they say, guess what? I'm getting married. Or they say, I got a promotion at work. Or we're expecting a child. Or my child's taking his first steps. Or this or that. Whatever matters most to us, we always share with others. And so if Jesus saving you is, in fact, the greatest thing that's ever happened to you, and listen to me, if you're a Christian, it is. And if Jesus has completely transformed your life, then you must go and tell others about what he has done for you. If it matters to you, share it with others. Because let me ask you this. Has it ever occurred to you that like these two demon-possessed men, Jesus has you right where he wants you? Has it ever occurred to you that there is much work that is needed to be done 
right where you're at. And that Jesus wants you to be the person to bring about that change. You, you don't need to invite your pastor to work with you. You got this, okay? I believe in you. <laughs> there isn't a bring your pastor to work day. You know how to share the gospel with people. You know what Jesus has done for you? Tell them your testimony if you can't think of anything else. But the people that you're surrounded with on a weekly basis at your job or in your neighborhood, your friend group, Jesus wants to use you to be the difference in their lives, to tell them about the mercy and grace of God in your life so that they too can experience. Jesus has you right where he wants you. So liberation results in transformation. And guess what transformation leads to? It leads to proclamation. If it matters to you, share it with others. That's the right response for when Jesus comes into your life. But here's what I want you to understand. There's another response too. And this is the, the bad response. Look at verses 33 to 34. The herdsmen fled and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. Now pause, all right? Think about what's happening here. You have two well-known demon-possessed men. They are so well-known that the entire surrounding village have to alter their lives and not even go that way. And then the herdsmen come, and they tell the entire village, here's what Jesus has done. You remember those two demon-possessed men? They're free. All the demons are gone. They went into some pigs. They jumped off a cliff. They're gone now. Our city, our village is free. Everybody rejoice. And so you read, all the crowd, all the city comes out to see Jesus. And when they saw him, what do you expect to happen? What do you expect? You're part of this village. What do you expect to read? They all praised him. They all thanked him. Glory to God in the highest. He's delivered these men. He set free our city. Praise to the Son of God. That's what we expect. But what do we actually read? They, what's that word, church? Begged. They begged Jesus to leave their region. Now that's a shock ending, is it not? Talk about your twist endings. These people, we expected them to come out rejoicing God for what he had done, praising Jesus for delivering these men in their village, and they begged. Circle the word, underline it, put a star next to it. They begged Jesus to leave their region. The demons begged, delay our punishment. The two men who had been freed begged, please just let us be with you. And the people who were beneficiaries of Jesus' deliverance begged him to leave their region forever. Why would they do that? Well, in order to address that, we have to go back to the pig situation. I didn't forget about it. You're thinking, oh, the pastor just skipped over the hard part. No, no, no. We're, we're here. We're going to talk about it, okay? Let's be honest with each other. Bit of a weird story, is it not? You got some demons. You got some pigs. They go into the pigs. They jump off a cliff. They all drown. And we're all thinking, what in the world? What, what is that about? What, what does this even mean? Why is it in the Bible at all? Well, here, here's what you need to understand. Do you remember how I said the demons knew their fate was sealed? They knew there was coming a day when Jesus was going to put an end to them. I mean, they knew there was no getting around that. And so they know that Jesus isn't going to let them go and possess some other humans. So they see some pigs and they say, okay, we can't go into humans. Let us go into the pigs. And they had a plan. Since they knew that they were going to be destroyed anyways, they thought they might as well cause as much harm on the way out as they possibly could. I've used this analogy before, but it's kind of like in football when a team is getting blown out like crazy. You, you watch a football game, okay, and a team is just getting absolutely blown out, 
What does the losing team start to do in the last two minutes of the game? See a bunch of cheap shots, see a bunch of late hits. They start throwing punches, which I've never understood. Why are you going to punch someone with a helmet on? Makes no sense to me. You got cleats. I mean, just do, I'm not saying cleat someone, but I'm saying, like, don't throw a punch at a helmet. Makes no sense. But that's what they start doing, right? They start taking all sorts of cheap shots there in the last few minutes. Why do they do that? Because they know they've already lost. They know that there's nothing they can do to overturn the results of the game. And so they figure if we're going down, we're going down swinging. We're going to cause as much harm and pain as we can on our way out. That's exactly what the demons were thinking here. Because notice this, if there were 2,000 pigs in this herd, there were people who were benefiting from these pigs. They provided economic stability to this city. Uh, the people there benefited from the pigs as food. This was not a Jewish region. This was a Gentile region, so they were allowed to eat the pigs. And so the people in the city relied on the pigs for food. But not just that, the herdsmen themselves, since they have such a large herd of pigs, they needed this herd for money. They needed to be able to, to sell the pigs and, and, and kill the pigs and offer them up as food in order to provide financial stability for them and their families. And so don't miss this, church. With the destruction of the pigs comes the collapse of economic stability for the herdsmen and the village, and they can't bear that. They can't bear it, and so they begged Jesus to leave their city. They begged Jesus to leave them alone. I don't want you to miss what's going on here. Notice this. The people in this city were more willing to tolerate demonic influence in their lives than they were to tolerate Jesus' influence in their lives. That's sad, is it not? They were more willing to tolerate demonic influence than Jesus' influence. They would rather have economic security and worldly goods than they would have deliverance from demonic oppression. You see, Jesus has become too much of a disruption to their lives. From their perspective, Jesus has wrecked their lives entirely. And so they can't rejoice in the deliverance because they're too upset by the disruption. And that's what I want you to understand when we read this. If deliverance isn't worth the disruption, you'll turn Jesus away. When Jesus comes into your life and he disrupts your life, turns it completely around, everything changes. If he is not worth that disruption, you'll turn him away. And I think that's a great explanation of what we see in our world today. It's the sad reality of our world today, is it not? People today cannot accept Jesus or welcome him into their lives because they think Jesus causes too much disruption to my life. They think if I become a Christian, well, I'll have to change everything about my life. If I become a Christian, my friends aren't going to want to hang out with me anymore. My family might disown me. People might make fun of me. There could be tension in my relationships because I'm going to be holding to new values and new principles that my friends don't hold to. And there's going to be a lot of tensions there. So I could lose friends. I'm going to have to give up certain things in my life that I love. I'm going to have to cut out some habits. I'm going to have to change my priorities. I might even have to change careers. This is all too much. They think I would rather have nothing to do with Jesus at all than have him turn my life upside down. They look at literal salvation and deliverance from sin, and they say that deliverance is not worth the disruption. And here's what breaks my heart. We're willing to tolerate disruption for things we love most, are we not? 
I mean, we've got a great example this morning. I think of Don and Jan Cruz. I think that's one of the best examples you can think of. I mean, Jan's dementia caused quite the disruption to Don's life, didn't it? He had to change everything about his life. His routine, his activities, his schedule. He had to change literally everything to take care of her. She disrupted his, his life quite a bit. But did Don just walk away and say, well, phooey on this. I'm not going to deal with it anymore. This disruption, this is just too much. I would rather not have her in my life at all than deal with this disruption. Is that what Don did? Absolutely not. He was by her side night and day, every day of her dementia until the Lord finally called her home. Why would he do that? It's because Jan was worth the disruption. Amen? So my question to you, is Jesus worth the disruption to your life? Is he worth that disruption? If following Jesus does mean changing everything about your life, if it means accepting that your friends will change, if it means accepting that your priorities will change, if it means accepting hostility and tension and hardships that will come, is Jesus worth that disruption to you? And for so many in our world, the answer is no, Jesus is not worth it. For so many in our world, they would rather have the influence of Satan and the demonic realm than the influence of Jesus in their lives. And I hope that's not true for you. Every person in here this morning is getting to have an encounter with Jesus. Praise God for that. We know that Jesus is always with his people. And so he is here with us now and we are getting to have an encounter with him. He has come into your life today. It might be for the first time. It could be for the thousandth time. But you are getting to have an encounter with Jesus today. And the question is, how are you going to respond to it? Will you cleave or will you beg him to leave? I want you to know something as your pastor. I want you to know what Satan's plan for your life is because it's much the same as with the pigs. He wants to drive you off a cliff. He wants to derail your life completely. He wants you to care more about your comfort and the things of this world than you ever could about Jesus. He wants you to care more about the disruption that Jesus brings into your life than the deliverance that Jesus offers you in your life. He wants to influence you to reject Jesus and be just like the townsfolk here and beg Jesus to leave you alone. But I want you to know something. Jesus is more powerful than Satan and the entire demonic realm. And I want you to know what his plan for your life is. Jesus' plan for your life is deliverance and salvation and freedom. Freedom from the bondage of your sin. Freedom from oppression from the enemy. Freedom from the wrath of God. Freedom from an eternity in hell. God wants you to have life and have it in abundance. And that is only found in Jesus. It's not found in any of the worldly goods that we cling to. It's not found in our economic prosperity. It's not found in our careers, our spouse, our children, anything. Our hope for life and life eternal is in Jesus Christ alone. And he wants us to have that life. And so as you encounter him today and you see his love and his power and his grace and his mercy, you have to decide, will you cleave or will you beg him to leave? Let's pray together.